Guru Nation, thank you so much for checking out another episode of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. It really means a lot to me. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to thank my sponsors. The first one is Inato. That's I-N-A-T-O, and you can find them at Inato.com. Inato is business development for free for sites. Whether you are a brand new site, whether you're an experienced site, you go on there, you create your site profile, they will match you with appropriate studies. They will jump on Zoom calls with you to prepare you for potential site selection visits from sponsors. They will tell you if your capabilities are up to par with what the sponsor is looking for, if your demographics are up to par as far as your patient population and your site capabilities. You build out your profile for free. They go to work trying to match you with appropriate studies. They talk to you about it. If you're a fit, they hand you off to the sponsor. There is no catch. There is no budget that they take on the back end. It's just a service where they match sites to sponsors for free. I'm a paid client of my own service, DSCS, where we do a bunch of hand-holding for sites, where we help them do their budgets, try to get them studies, help them with their feasibilities, create SOPs, create source, all that stuff for a low monthly fee, 1500 bucks. I use Inato as well because it's free. And why not complement the other things I'm doing for my business development, for my marketing, for my operations with a free site profile on Inato? These guys know what they're doing. They're running tech. They're experts in research and in tech. And they're merging the two things together, Inato.com. Thank you very much. My second sponsor, Versatrel. I was a huge skeptic of Versatrel. And now I use Versatrel on a daily basis, multiple times a day. For any of you guys that do studies, you know that most studies have between 8 to 12 different vendors for various aspects of running the trial from the IRB to the IRT to the EDC to the recruitment companies to all kinds of various things even within those portals that are sometimes hard to find and you got to navigate to electronic patient reported outcomes, the trainings for the patient diaries, the backup. There's so many things. Versatrial lets you store all these things in your site workspace for free for as many studies as you want. And then they have a back-end tool that helps you also do feasibility surveys for your site. So it cuts down the time on your feasibility surveys tremendously. I absolutely recommend all sites Use Versatrel, versatrel.io. Finally, Creo, clinicalresearch.io. Talk about a company that I was extremely skeptical of when I first heard of Ray's idea in 2017. Now I can't live life without Creo. I've been using Creo as a power user for two years. I've been playing with it on and off for the previous five years. Creo has an e-source. It has an e-reg. It has a CTMS. It has patient recruitment. It has e-consent. It has financial forecasting. It has a marketplace where you can buy source templates. They have so many things. They roll out new things all the time. They have an incredible support team. They have a help desk that actually is responsive immediately on chat with a question mark right by your workspace. It's amazing. It is all my coordinators know at Yuma Clinical Trials, we started with Electronic Source and never looked back. It has made our lives so much more easier. And Creo has such a cool backend where they're now collaborating with other tech companies in the industry and sponsors. And you just want to be on the right side of history when it comes to our industry and where technology is moving and site-centric solutions like Creo, like Inato, like Versatrel. They're here to stay, guys. Go check it out in the show notes. And now enjoy the show. Hey, Guru Nation. Welcome back to another episode. We try to cover all different topics of our lovely clinical research industry, ranging from tech vendors to sites to career seekers to um, CROs and sponsors. Today, we've got an interesting story. We've got actually very interesting. I don't think we've ever had a guest like you on before. So we have Dr. George McGrath. He is the CEO of Lexitas Pharma Services, which we're going to get into. And also at the same time, 
a practicing ophthalmologist, which I have a lot of respect for ophthalmology. This is an area of research that I admittedly know very little about. I tried to dabble in it with a PI. Um, unfortunately, he retired right when we were about to get a study. Never worked out. But Dr. McGrath has a really interesting story about how he became a CEO of Lexitas because prior to that, besides just private practice, you were principal investigator, right? I'm assuming for studies. Yeah. Yeah, I was. So I've been a principal investigator on a number of studies in ophthalmology. Um, but uh, but I also was working on the sponsor side. So I was working for a company called Hobione, um, which is a CDMO um, traditionally, but they uh, they were developing their own proprietary products. And so I was responsible with a group of people of, of taking their uh, internal um, intellectual property and, and progressing it into the clinic. And so that's how I actually got acquainted with like us. So how did you go from, okay, so as a PI, you were doing, were you doing like clinical trials for Lexitas as an investigator? No, so I, I did, um, so I did, so my story is a little bit more nuanced than that. So I came out of, um, came out of training and I went to an equity analyst firm. So I was an equity analyst for a, a firm on Wall Street called Edison Investment Research. And, and from there, I jumped into the sponsor side because I was evaluating a product for Hovia at the time and doing some research on it, um, like equity research on it. Um, and so that's how I got into the sponsor side. I've sort of done the PI work on the side whenever I've been interested in studies. So I, within my practice. So, so as a private so practice clinician, you... You do occasionally do research studies, but you primarily do your private practice. How do you? How did you have time to become an equity this, analyst? Well, at this point, it's one day a week, so it's 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 really curtailed. So it was a yeah. So so it's very very much. Uh, so I would assume Dan. As an ophthalmologist, which I believe he said he is, so you're the doctor, um, the medical doctor, and then the, you probably have a number of optometrists working under you, in which you're delegating a lot of your tasks to them. It's kind of like a PA and an MD and general practitioner kind of situation, I would assume. Does that sound about right, doctor? Yeah, it is. So it's the relationship between optometry and ophthalmology is interesting. So optometrists are are uh, are very good at, um, at at glasses, refractions, contact lenses, and primary eye care, and so they actually make great um, great eye doctors. Um, and while ophthalmologists are more surgical based, right? And so that's that's sort of where they play. Um, and but, uh, but a, and, an, uh, sorry, an optometrist. Mm -hmm. If I'm wrong here, an optometrist is not a medical doctor, though. You're that's correct. Doctor. Yes, that's correct. That's the difference is that uh, my training is medical school followed by four years of ophthalmology mm. residency or one year of internship, three years of residency. Um, whereas an optometrist does four years of optometry school and, and doesn't do medical school. Yeah. So it is, it's a, uh, so it ends up being a pretty good, it's analogous to a physician extender, you know, the relationship and they, uh, they do good research, right? So they do, they, uh, in ophthalmology clinical trials, um, certainly for anterior segment trials, like eye drops and things like that for dry eye and neurotrophic keratitis and some of the other things, um, and contact lens trials and, and, uh, and different things like that. They're fantastic investigators. Um, and then for other trials, they're fantastic sub-investigators, right? So kind of to your point, Chris, where they get uh, they get delegated a lot of the uh, a lot of the activities of the trial under the ophthalmologist. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. um, Dr. McGrath, I'm still curious. So, you know, you do the med school, you do the residency, you do private practice. Where did you? When did you decide to become an equity analyst? So, so I did. So I I did a um, 
master's in economics uh, from Hopkins while I was in a really between um, kind of the end of residency before fellowship. And so when I did that, that's when I got introduced to the field and learned the trade. So that's, that's how I got into that. So um, when I came out of uh, fellowship, I pretty quickly was part-time and then it's, it's dwindled down more and more as I've, uh, as I've progressed in the industry. Mm -hmm. And how did the CEO position come about with Lexitas? Yeah, so Lexitas was my service provider for about six years at Hobion. So we ran a number of trials with Lexitas when I was a sponsor side. And so um, we were doing work with uh, with a menocycline product for uh, mybomia gland dysfunction and ocular rosacea. And, uh, and then we were also doing an ivermectin project for uh, these mites called Demodex that can get on your eyelids. And, um, and so worked with them for a while. And then it came time where Hobia, with the, it was the end of life cycle for those projects at Hobia. So they were looking to license them out and things like that. And so it was a natural time for me to make a move. And so the uh, folks at Lextos were nice enough to hire me as a uh, chief medical officer to start with. And then they promoted me about six months into CEO. And this is a CRO. They're a niche ophthalmology CRO. Mm -hmm. It's a, yeah, Lexitas is a niche ophthalmology only CRO. Uh, we're about 200 people based out of the Raleigh Durham area. And we, um, we run uh, really global trials in ophthalmology anything from retina, like a lot of what we do is diabetic eye disease, age-related macular degeneration, um, cataract surgery is a big thing we do, dry eye, um, you know, contact lenses, things like that. So, And I'm always surprised, again, I have like the least amount of experience probably of all therapeutic areas in ophthalmology from my career and probably Chris as well. Um, there's always seems to be a lot of studies in ophthalmology and mm -hmm. they're rather lucrative actually compared to most therapeutic indications. And I guess that could lead into a broader discussion of why is that the case and how does that, how does ophthalmology kind of maybe, um, forecast growth for the rest of the clinical research industry or does it? Mm -hmm. So it's a good, so it's a, it's a good point, right? So you're exactly right. It is, it is a, it is a bigger market than you would expect, right? So I think, um, you know, the best I can tell, it's about a, it, it's somewhere between 1.5 and $2 billion outsourced CRO services market um, in, in ophthalmology. So I think it's, I think it's rather, I think it's rather big considering it's a niche area. Um and it and it and and certainly um, to your point, the cost per patient in ophthalmology, according to some of the industry research, is is higher than most. So it is more expensive to develop in ophthalmology um, than it is in others. And um, and really uh, and really, whether or not it's a bellwether for. Um, the market overall is is really an interesting question, right? And I think that that's, I honestly think that um, that it it I think that ophthalmology likely is indicative as a leading indicator for which way the market's going because it can be lucrative for sponsors, but it also is one of the first things to decrease when the markets go down, right? So in the in the current market that we're in. Um, I think what you're seeing is sort of back to the basics for a lot of the biotechs, a lot of a lot of the, the VC community, a lot of the um, a lot of the investment community um, uh, later stage. And and I think that what that means to me is that it's doubling down on oncology, it's doubling down on, you know, diabetes, other types of uh, indications which are much larger um, and, and, and more um and more in the wheelhouse of large pharma companies, right? And so, and then to count, 
on the counter side of that, what you've seen is the withdrawal of some big pharma companies from ophthalmology. You saw Novartis kind of exit ophthalmology a few months ago, and and others have have similarly sort of cut back on ophthalmology. So, so I think that whenever the market is turning south, it uh, it the the overall industry focuses on the core basics of oncology, um, diabetes, um, you know, hypertension, other things like that. Um, and when the market is expanding, uh, they look, they start to look into areas like ophthalmology where you might get an outsized return, but it's a little bit off, off of the beaten path. I see. So you think like to compare it to like, let's say stocks, since you're equity analyst, would it be like ophthalmology is like a growth sector and then maybe the the diabetes, obesity, they're like the industrials, like the the stocks that give dividends rather than huge gains? I think that's exactly right. With the one caveat that the GLP one that uh that was done was has the has just like you know blown the roof off. Um, We've got a few studies huge. in yeah. my site here in Arizona, <laughs> Yuma Clinical Trials. I work with a doctor that loves obesity. He specializes in diabetes yeah. and obesity, and he's obsessed now with getting these kind of trials. So it's keeping mm-hmm. us busy. Chris just ne- Chris That's is negotiating awesome. one right now. <laughs> he says the budget looks decent. I think mm-hmm. I haven't looked at it. Yeah, I'll tell you though, it's it's. You know how the specialty equipment that's required in ophthalmology is probably what makes it tough for for um, for doctors who aren't truly in the area to jump in, right? And, and it's uh, it's not just a slit lamp and outfitting an ophthalmic exam lane. Our we've gotten really big on imaging in our studies, and right. and that's uh, and and all of that is specialty imaging. It's not MRIs or anything like that. It's all I mean, imaging is everything in, in ophthalmology. Like hundred percent. How yeah. does AI play a role in this? Do you think that, I mean, across any therapeutic area, you're going to have central assessments, right? Central readers, whether it's mm-hmm. for X-rays or MRIs for osteoarthritis or Alzheimer's. Um, you're starting to see EEGs and other wearables in in major depressive disorder and CNS indications. Ophthalmology has always been about imaging. I mean, those are like the mm-hmm. primary endpoints, right? usually oh absolutely yeah i think uh certainly um imaging has always been central up until the appellus approval earlier this year um companies had always had to fall back on a functional endpoint like vision or something like that um for luxterna for the, the gene therapy that was approved it was a maze where the Patients had to walk through without stumbling on blocks with the lights turned down low. Um, wow. And uh, <laughs> I know brutal. It, is, it, is, it is brutal. It's uh, we've actually been the University of Pennsylvania is doing some work on a virtual reality um, aspect of that, where you actually put on an Oculus headset and do that rather than actually in real life tripping over blocks, which I think is much more humane. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, it's a good it's a good uh, development that's uh, that's coming out of UPenn uh, that we're we're following and have worked uh-huh. a little bit. Um, but back to your question about AI and imaging, we, um, you know, because Apellus was approved on an imaging endpoint, which was the first time that's happened in ophthalmology, it's it's been a little bit game on for imaging as the primary endpoint for our trials, and so people are really doubling down on the imaging now, and. And to hit on the AI aspect of it, um, I think that, uh, I mean, there's two, there's two aspects of this, right? So imaging and ophthalmology is becoming higher resolution, more, um, you know, more precise. There's, there's advances in the actual technology where people are using adaptive optics and things like that and getting down to resolution, you know, right now the OCT axial resolution is like seven microns. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's incredible the detail you can see. And then you've got the other aspect, which is the software side where AI plays plays a part. And just like in any indication, you know, the role of AI right now is to pick out patterns in the data that humans can't see. Right. So that's that's really what we're doing with it right now. We are um, we're using it to to basically. And, you know, to basically feed in 
all of the pre-treatment images and then look at the images post-treatment and mark the patients who are a success and mark the ones who are a failure and ask the computer if they can help pick out the patients at baseline that are most likely to have a favorable response. So, uh -huh, uh -huh. so um, at Lexitas, there's a lot of people doing a lot of great, great work on this, but at Lexitas, what we've done is basically phase one of the project where we where we've trained the computer to look at images of an eye and tell whether or not the patient has diabetic macular edema, so a type of diabetes in the eye. And it can do that with a literally a 99% specificity and a 96% sensitivity. So it's pretty accurate. Sorry. Is a physician as accurate as AI? Yeah. So for this, it is. So this is a pretty simple thing. So physicians can look at it and you can tell, you can tell on, honestly, it's pretty much a hundred percent. It's pretty obvious. Um, so that's phase one of the project that we've been working on. Phase two is to see if we can't extrapolate it like I was talking about to a trial where we say, okay, these are, these are all diabetic macular edema patients. Okay, which ones respond, which ones don't? How do we, how do we tell? So that's, that's honestly what we're working on right now. Yeah, the algorithms are kind of what are, that's a new thing I've noticed, Chris. We have a depression study and they're using algorithms based on brain waves to drop people out. Like mm -hmm. the algorithms mm -hmm. are the final filter after the humans run the IE criteria. The last thing is must pass the algorithm check of brain waves. And yeah. like you said, uh, doctor, they're, they're looking at the pattern. So we're seeing this across different therapeutic areas, but it seems like ophthalmology has been leading the way. As somebody, as a CEO of a CRO, I mean, Chris and I have these discussions all the time with sites and at what point, you know, all the big CROs, all the five letter ones, three letter ones, they, they started yeah. out being um, enabling sponsors, right? They enabled sponsors to do more. They enabled sponsors to do trials and not have to worry about monitoring. Um, mm -hmm. And over the decades, that's evolved into more complex trials. And it's mm -hmm. almost as if many of the CROs have an incentive to increase the complexity, not reduce it. Uh, as a CEO of a niche ophthalmology only CRO, do you see the role of the CRO changing? Like it used to be just about monitoring. Now that's mm -hmm. almost like an afterthought compared to all the tech you guys are rolling out. Yeah. So, so I think that it's a, uh, what it's, I think what the industry is changing to, at least in ophthalmology is, is that our job has been, is, has more from just being an extension of monitoring and an extension of project management to actually being the operators who figure out how to truly execute these trials. Because as a, I think the pendulum swung a little bit too far in the complexity because what we're preaching now is, is more of a simplicity because enrollment rates went down, right? So as the complexity went up and, co and as we had COVID and people lost staff and things like that, there's been a big, there's been a big across the board, not just ophthalmology, but everywhere it's been, there've been problems with enrollment rates. And so, we spend honestly a lot of our time right now thinking about how we improve enrollment rates and and that um, and uh, and that goes to a couple things right that number one is it goes to complexity of the trial um, because it just becomes too difficult to do at some point um, and the investigators just don't want to do it right they'll pick a yeah. different trial it's easier <laughs> um, and then it comes to uh, it comes to staffing at sites and so making sure that the sites that uh, that lost a lot of staff during the great resignation or actually getting those people back and then training them. Right. So when they bring in their people, training them. And, um, and we've actually got some good case studies of that where we've, we've had investigators who come to us and said, Hey, we're interested in research, but we've never done anything. It's kind of intimidating. And we, um, we send some of our people to sort of to the site to train their people and, um, and they enroll and they have great data quality and things like that. So so I think there's a shift in the industry towards um, towards getting trials done in a cost-efficient, time-efficient manner 
at this point that uh, that that's a little bit different than just um, trying to ramp up the complexity and trying to ramp up the monitoring visits and things like that. So, and at the yeah. same time, and I know Chris has been dying to ask the CEO of a CRO some questions, but at the same time, <laughs> an interesting observation I have had and been having with tech vendors, especially the ones I respect, is there are there's been this shift from tech vendors to making products more site centric. So, mm -hmm. you know, in the past, everything was patient centric and it sounds good, but it's very difficult to achieve. Uh, but mm -hmm. site centric is a little more achievable. Uh, however, it's very tough to build a business model on that because it requires user base and user growth and premium sort of growth. Uh, but I see the tech companies as slowly inching into CRO territory, at least territory that used to be CRO. I mean, CROs were supposed to be site-centric at some mm -hmm. point, and then sometime along the timelines, that shifted to where <laughs> they're no longer site-centric. They'll never say it, but they're the ones, you know, acquiring these vendors and then forcing them on the sites when the sites mm -hmm. don't want them. What are mm -hmm. your thoughts on this? Like, as a CEO of a CRO, do you view these yeah. tech companies as allies or... Are you guys trying to innovate in, internally or how do you no, see this? So, yeah. So I would say that our, this is very prescient because I just had a, I just literally had a call about this right before, um, like yesterday. So, um, so this is, this is on top of my mind and, uh, and I'll tell you that example and then I'll get into our sort of philosophy. That example is that we've got a, a new, um, a new technology machine that is evaluating it's the primary endpoint in one of our studies and um and that's been rolled out by a small company that basic that is a tech company right and they're 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 basically a hardware company and so um the cool thing is to partner where with them where they say hey we can provide the tech right we we know how to do that you guys know how to handle the sites and you guys know how to roll this out and operationalize it how can we work together to get this to get this this hardware into into the sites and get it uh, get it up and running without uh, without upsetting the sites you know without without causing undue stress and so I, so it was, a, it was a fantastic conversation we had and I think it's a great model um, in general at Lexitas we're site centric right so we are doing our best to protect the trials, protect the, uh, the investigators. And we don't, um, we, we honestly will, um, will use tech when it's needed and wanted, but we are not trying to push anything out that the sites don't want. So if we're getting pushback from the sites, we, uh, we, 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 we basically that that's, that's what rules the day because I think to your point, I think the first step from our side, the first step towards being patient centric is to be site centric, right? If we can make the sites functioning well and happy and enabling them, then they're the ones who are seeing the patients. So right. Right. I think that I think that that's our philosophy. So we we develop, we deploy tech when needed, but we certainly don't we we only do it when it's needed by the sites. Uh, I mean, so many things I can ask. What do you think about sponsors uh, trying to squeeze in more and more exploratory endpoints um, at the cost of increasing study complexity? What is your role as a CRO as far as advising them to do that or not to do that in different situations? Yeah, it's a balance, right? I mean, you want them to, you know, and rightfully so if these patients are, are giving up their time and, and are, are willing to enroll in the trial you want to get as much data about the drug as you can um but uh but i view our role as being the media we're the mediator right we're the the we're um my job is to allow the scientist at the sponsor to decide the whole laundry list of what they'd like to have and and then i come back and i say well this, that, and the other is reasonable. 
and then X, Y, and Z is not reasonable to do. And, 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 you know, we'll do it if they want to. And we've done things like separating visits into two days and stuff like that so that you can get all these exploratory endpoints done. But my job is to counsel them that, uh, that the more they add, the harder it becomes on the patients, the harder it becomes on the sites, the lower the enrollment rates become. And, uh, and, and then you honestly, you worry about uh, at some point when you add too many things, you wonder about whether or not you're, you're sort of overloading the data from a quality perspective, right? If, if it becomes too, too complex, you end up getting a lot of deviations and stuff like that. So yeah, these phase two slash threes or one slash twos are, <laughs> Getting out of hand. Like that's something we've seen a lot of. Is <laughs> um, that's something we've seen a lot of? Is is, is basically a one slash two, where it seems like a real trend in the industry is is to do your es dose escalation, then immediately go out into a uh, into an expansion cohort. So yeah. it's in the same study and just mm -hmm. flipping the switch whenever you feel like it. I'm dealing mm -hmm. with one of these right now. Chris, go ahead, <laughs> man. Just so I just want to ask a follow-up question to that, and you probably already know the answer to this, Dan, because you do these every day, but I don't, and I would assume some of the audience doesn't know the answer to this as well. So um, in terms of complexity, I would assume the push for more complex trials is a combination of both the FDA and the sponsor, mm -hmm. but which is primarily responsible for the more complex trials? Is it the requirements of the, the FDA or is it the sponsor being greedy in terms of data? So I can speak, I can speak for ophthalmology um, because I'm familiar with the ophthalmology uh, department there, which I think is, it may or may not be a little bit unique. Um, but uh, from my perspective, the FDA ophthalmic division is, uh, is quite, um, it's quite clear and concise about what they want. Um, they've they've done a great job of putting out some guidances, and they've done a great job of telling people exactly what the path is to prove efficacy. And um, and and they don't, uh, you know, to to get them to validate a new endpoint is quite a hurdle, right? It's been done. It's done very recently by Apellis, but uh, but it has to have very very clear rationale. So. So I think that most of the uh, complexity increase that we see in clinical trials is secondary to, uh, to sponsors trying to learn more and more about their drug, right? Just trying to understand their drug better. And, and it's a reasonable thing for them to be doing. And it's our job to sort of, you know, at, at times just not, not to push back, that's not the right word, but at times to, uh, to, to just uh, alert them to what, the real world consequences are of some of these evaluations. So a dozen years ago, it used to be relatively simple to recruit patients for most studies, regardless of the mm -hmm. area. Um, and now it's become very difficult in almost all areas of research. Yeah. Um, now, what, what I hear you telling me is that sponsors are the main uh, I guess, problem in this area in terms of making yeah. stuff complex to recruit patients, at least from the site level. Um, so is that economically, is that beneficial to sponsors in terms of, yes, we're making this more difficult, but the data we're able to gather is making us help, is helping us determine which studies or which, which um, new drugs, which IP, really will probably be successful and which will not at an early point. I mean, what's what's the rationale behind the complexity if it's economically not beneficial? And again, maybe it is in terms of pursuing an IP, right? If you can't get patients, it's very costly for a study. Yeah, right, yeah. And, uh, and the number of studies that... Um, you know, I was I was shocked. This obviously doesn't happen for us. We finish all the studies we start, but I was shocked to see a statistic about the number of studies that actually don't ever finish because they mm -hmm. can't enroll. Um, but uh, but to to your question, so I I don't think that the uh, my thought is a little bit more nuanced. I don't think that the sponsors are the primary reason why enrollment has gotten 
out of hand. I think the primary reason why enrollment has gotten tougher has been has been a lot around um, the uh, the macroeconomic and, and environment of everything that happened with COVID, right? So I think that the I think that what we saw were a lot of our key sites lost a lot of personnel, and so we had great PIs that were trying to train new study coordinators from scratch, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that that really really slowed everything down. On top of that, you had a backlog of patients that had to work through the system. So all the patients who didn't go get eye care during COVID, um, you know, rightfully so, um, were now were now getting back into the system. And so you had sites that had more patients, less staff. And I think that that drove a lot of it. And you you pile on the complexity issue that you were talking that we were just talking about, and you've got like a recipe for. For, for a not great enrollment rate. So, so I think it's a little bit of all of those. Well, add on top of that, now, not only are studies getting harder, not only are sites and zeros more short-staffed and more overworked than ever, maybe the a bit of a recession here will mm-hmm. change that a little bit, but there's still such a backlog. But on top of all of this, throw in the push for DE&I now. So Studies mm-hmm. now need to enroll minority patients as well. Where in the past, we couldn't get anyone. Forget about what their background was. Now, they want a certain percentage uh, to fit or to check mm-hmm. the DE&I boxes. So it, it makes it even, like exponentially tougher. It's almost impossible to pull this off, all of these things simultaneously. Yeah, and we we've been lucky because we've always sort of We've we've always done a pretty good job with uh, DE and I with uh, in ophthalmology because we uh, we naturally have have gone to nationwide sites that uh, that have had um, a good number of underrepresented you know people populations and so so that's something that uh, that we are in the, we are very much more cognizant of for the reasons that you described it's it's. Uh, you know, we we now we now include that with the thought process, and and in some cases have plans around that um, for for larger trials to ensure that we get there. And so it does add another level of complexity. But luckily in ophthalmology, we've been um, it hasn't really changed much of what we've done because we've we've sort of naturally gotten a diverse group of people. So what about how do you do that with the community based sites? Um... Mm-hmm. We do mostly, yeah, we do we do mostly uh, community community based sites. So we do we do almost all private practices for ophthalmology, and um, and then we've selected practices that are in different areas of the United States. So we we when we look at where the site uh, distribution is, you know, we make sure that there are both sites in the Carolinas, you know, Minnesota, you know, California kind of spread out like that, you know, all over the place. So it, it ends up being representative. I do think it's important. Um, I think it's only fair to uh, to people that uh, that at the end of the day, the drug is, gets tested in all different people populations before it gets approved so that we know. Um, so it adds complexity, but it's I think it's an important thing. What about decentralized clinical trials? Every three years, there seems to be a new buzz, and it's been DCT until Care Access um, fiasco. But yesterday, there was new FDA guidance on DCT. Do you think that works in ophthalmology, or or that doesn't work for you guys? Uh, It's a little tougher for us. There's one company (laughs) out there that's doing a good job. It's called 2020 Onsite. They have... uh, they have some buses that go around that are fully equipped, but uh, but they DC got research on a bus also, man, that's a bad <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> bad omen. So it's uh so they're so they're 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 doing a good job, and and they're um they're catering to a lot of ophthalmic exams for other indications. So that's that's a real niche, right? Is is when you're working in a different therapeutic area, as we know, a lot of the the immunotherapies and things like that have caused side effects with the eyes. And so getting those eye exams is, uh, is a good service for some of those other 
those other trials. That's actually a good or, point. Like MAPS and basically like this whole wave of immunotherapy and monoclonal antibodies. You do raise a good point. Like vision is one of the primary safety concerns for most of these new studies that we have. You, I mean, that's just going to keep these ophthalmology clinics busier. Yeah, and it's and it's hard because again, it's it's a whole to our point earlier, it's a whole new level of complexity because mm. the um, you're trying to run an oncology infusion trial, and then you try to add in ophthalmology on top of that, and just finding the site that's near, you know, contracting with them, getting everything set up is 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 a pain. And so, 2020 on site has a great offering for that, where they just literally pull the ophthalmic clinic up into the infusion center parking lot and they can get it done. You know? so They're nationwide. Cool. These guys are nationwide. Yeah, they are nationwide. Yeah. Hmm. We might need one for, uh, <laughs> we don't do ophthalmology studies, but increasingly we need eye exams as hmm. one of our assessments. Um, and if you think about yeah. it, Chris and everyone else listening, the vision changes, blurry vision. I mean, that's like, 80% of all drugs have that listed on their labels, right? Yep. The, if you watch commercials, you don't even need to work in our industry. You'll listen to the side effects afterwards. You almost always hear something about vision. Yeah. And if you, like everybody does now, they look at screens all day, phone screens. Yeah. Laptops, That's huge. It causes blurry vision too. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, so, for us, for ophthalmic-centric trials, DCT is tough. We, you know, there there are some because it's so imaging-based and because it's so uh, the equipment is so nuanced, it becomes difficult to dissociate that from the site. Um, so, so we, um, you know, there's some forays into that, but nothing that's been transformational yet. So, do you guys still? You're a CRO. That's I imagine constantly seeking sites, rescue sites, whatever you need need to be. Are you finding a lack of qualified sites? Uh, do you need research naive ophthalmologists doing studies? Yeah, I think so. I think so. So I think what's what's happening with uh, what's happening in ophthalmology is that the number of sheer volume of trials has gone up dramatically. Um, and I don't think that the number of ophthalmologists conducting research has gone up commensurately with it. So I think what you have now is, um, is, is really a, uh, is really a research base of, of PIs that have a lot on their plate. I mean, it's not uncommon for me to talk to some of our PIs and they have 15, 20 active protocols at a time, right. That they're enrolling. And so it's good for Lexitas because one of our core, one of our core advantages why people come to us is because we, we work with them to make sure their protocols get to the top, right? We, we are really sensitive with, with our relationship with the investigators. So they do enroll our trials first and we are very sensitive to the complexity of the trial and, and all the other aspects of it. So that it is at the top of that pile. And I think that, uh, I think that that will only be alleviated when there are more sites out there. Um, that are doing research, and so I think that uh, I think that that is a a real core thing to uh, to getting enrollment rates back to what they were in 2019. Chris, we have any ophthalmology sites in our network? No, I don't think we do. <laughs> I almost had a PI here, but he retired, and um, out here in Utah, Arizona. Just FYI. Um... If you ever are looking for sites, I, I'm not sure I would have to ask our our coordinator of clients if we have any ophthalmologists. I would assume we do. Um, I'm just not aware. No, I appreciate that. We'll definitely reach out. We're always, we, we try to cast a wide net for sure. So, yep. Uh, yeah, especially if there could be BCT elements. Um, well, I mean, the ophthalmologist I had here uh, did everything, had all the equipment. He was just old mm -hmm. and retired. And then the <laughs> now we have an optometrist and they have a lot of our sponsors. They, they have like safety eye exam um, assessments. Mm -hmm. so they prefer ophthalmologists, but they'll accept an optometrist if they have the right mm -hmm. equipment. So 
these guys do they have like the optos and all that latest stuff yeah um, uh so and we've been here they've just been so busy we we're like booked out until july to send our patients there and it's may right now for those watching and i think it's completely reasonable for uh for optometrists to do that you know i think that uh if uh if it's just an eye exam you know the optometrists are, are can be trained and are very skilled so uh -huh. so they're good i think if you're to your point earlier in the podcast if you uh if you get into uh more systemic holistic medical doctor type things then you need then you need the ophthalmologist for sure do you think that you're still a practicing physician ophthalmologist do you think that's an advantage when it comes to site selection or mm -hmm. like do you oh, get yeah, on the yeah. phone with doctors and have just doctor doctor talk when they're your site 100 percent. yeah so I talk to the investigators all the time. I sort of know what the investigator is going to say because I've been in their shoes. So whenever I see a protocol or talk to a sponsor, I sort of, I sort of have a good feeling for how this, how the trial is going to enroll, how it's going to go. And, um, and it's pretty straightforward to validate that because, you know, I'm, a, I am a peer to them rather than. So are you the medical monitor around. also? C CEO and medical monitor? <laughs> I used to do that when we were smaller. I've oh, gotten okay. away from that as we've grown. So we've we've actually hired a number of other we've hired a number of other uh, couple of couple ophthalmologists and optometrists who who handle most of that now. Okay. So, yeah. Would you guys ever? We have a lot of a large segment of our audience that are career seekers and a lot of IMGs, international medical graduates. Um, mm -hmm. And I've heard other CROs have hired IMGs, provided they have enough mm -hmm. research experience to be medical monitors. Is that something you guys have thought about doing or have done? Yeah, that's something we've done before. And it's uh, in in actually multiple different uh, um, roles, both with uh, medical monitoring and more of like a strategy consulting type role, too. So so there's something we're open to, um, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. That's cool. Especially now things are getting more global, like Ikevia is in most countries, most developed countries. And, you know, who's to yeah. say that their, their medical monitor, if it's a doctor in Mexico and it's a global study, why not have him be the medical monitor for U.S. sites too? Like, it just makes sense. 100%. Yeah. And just an FYI, Dan, I asked Julie, we have two ophthalmologists in our network. There you go, Chris. Don't sell our go. services short. If you are a site looking for studies, we help That's you. Awesome. We help you negotiate your budgets. We put you in touch with people like Dr. McGrath. Um, so yeah, if you need two new sites that are probably not in your network, doctor, let us know. We've got them. Yeah, we appreciate that. Absolutely. Chris, anything else that you'd love to ask? Um no, I the things that I interested in were answered and i appreciate it sure i think niche cro's are going to become increasingly important if studies get more complex and i think the bigger cro's that we all know by name are going to have to evolve into tech companies um over the next decade and yeah that's interesting i i i fully see what you're saying with the with, um, you know, I, I do think that we are uniquely positioned for the more complex ophthalmic trials, you know, that uh, it, it may, it's one thing for a big CRO to pull off a straightforward, you know, contact lens trial or something like that. But some of the more complex that really involve deep thought are, are probably better than niche CRO. And then the big CRO is going to a tech company is a really interesting idea that I, that, I think you're probably on to something there too. Yeah, I just I think that so. the uh, tech's really a double-edged sword. I mean, for many trials, it makes at site level anyhow. Many trials, for many trials, it makes things much more difficult opposed to mm -hmm. easy. Yeah, the bad ones that are forced on you, but the site-centric ones that I've played with, mm -hmm. the sponsors of this podcast might as well name them: Versatrial, Creo, and Inato for now. Um, those are site-centric, tech-ish type of companies. I mean, 
two of them consider themselves full-on tech companies, um, Versatrial and, and Nato, and then Creo's the eSource, eBrag. Those are sure. all like site-focused. I use them every day. They make my life easier. And But no one forced me to use those. Those are like I voluntarily chose to use those. Mm-hmm. I think so that's we, the difference. A lot of these sure. CROs, they acquire these tech companies, and then they kind of make them fit what they needed to do, not what the sites need. So here's an example of tech that no site care cares for, ePros. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, there's just tech, and there's very similar techs as well that yeah. just are not not site-centric or do sites care to work with at all. Right. Yeah. I think probably got ePros I agree with every, that. every indication. <laughs> you guys do ePros in uh, yeah. ophthalmology? We don't do ePros. No, uh, we do we do pros, but not ePros. <laughs> so, so just when keep... the patient has a visit, you guys keep the questions limited to exactly. the day of visit. I think that's the best way to go yeah, about it. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, you know, we've messed through. Ophthalmology's never, you know, we have some. We actually have some good patient report outcome questionnaires, but uh, but they've never taken off as sort of as sort of essential to trials. So there hadn't been that big of a push to get all that extra, more complex data that, that ePros would purportedly get you. Mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on, Doctor. I mean, love to connect with other people in the industry that are like-minded and um, niche. I mean, you guys are niche. We respect that. We do have two sites in our network that apparently do fit the bill for probably what you're looking for and we'll we could get those names out to you um but thank you so much for coming on if people want to get a hold of you where can they go yeah so um selectstoss.com is our website um linkedin is a good way and then um it's just my name george.mcgrath selectstoss.com so it's uh we should be pretty easy to get a hold of and we, we welcome any conversations yeah. Do you have a LinkedIn profile for yourself or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have one for myself and certainly one for, for Lex Toss. Okay. Yeah. I'll put Dr. McGrath's LinkedIn underneath this video. You guys go connect with him. Thank you so much for coming on. Cool. Chris, thank you for co-hosting and letting us know how much we hate ePros. Um, <laughs> like, subscribe, comment, share, guys. Bye-bye. <laughs>